Thank you, Pastor Jared. I couldn't help but think I want to say to you what he said to the kids, to take whatever level of learning or listening that you have and take it up a notch, right? Take it up a notch tonight. And uh, I know you've been really good listeners. Actually, I commented to Pastor Tyler uh, just how much of a joy it is to speak to you and to your, your attentiveness is just extraordinary. I mean, think about it. Anybody that would take their basically vacation time to go to a Bible camp says something about them and their desire to hear uh, God's Word and to make that really just primary in their lives. So I want to commend you for that um, and appreciate the opportunity to speak tonight. Also, just uh, some of you have been giving me grief um, about where I grew up. And, and I don't know, are we having a malfunction there, Seth? Or what's, what's going on there? I'm not, I, I, is it my glasses or... or I don't know if you all can read that. Can you all read that? That's for Steve Pickray and for Tim Newman. All right. That's, that's who that's really for. You two guys. I think I'm... I, yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. I knew that I'd get all kinds of grief after that. But uh, I think at least one of your Facebook pages guy put that on after the game. I can't remember whose it was. Somebody, somebody here in, in my you know, wonderful former, former state of uh, Iowa where we lived for 23 years. So... I just had to, had to like throw that out there. Take your Bibles over. Let's go tonight to Luke. And as you're going there, let me just share a little bit more about my testimony. I, I wanted to do this last night, but time was such that, uh, that we really didn't have time to do that because one of the most common questions I get asked is, what led you to go from the pastorate to being the president of a, a mission organization, a mission agency? I get that a lot. And that's, that's a, a very valid question. And Really, to start with, it, it came from my own call to ministry um, as a young person. I shared this a little bit with the uh, guy's staff dorm last night. My, my surrender to the call to ministry as a teenager was, Lord, I'll go and do and be whatever you want. And that included if God wanted to be a missionary. And yet, as I was training for ministry, God made it really clear that he wanted me to serve him in pastoral ministry. But that didn't mean that my burden for missions and the lost around the world was diminished, even if I wasn't directly involved in missions. And so um, about three and a half years ago, uh, BMM asked me if I would consider serving. And I, I told them no a number of times, could not see myself not being in the pastorate, not serving. Uh, on top of that, things were going great at First Baptist Church of Illyria. Uh, we were actually just finishing up a, a capital campaign. We were just breaking ground for a building addition and remodel of another part of our building. And over the course of that previous year, we had seen more adults come to know Christ as their personal Savior that year than we had ever seen in my nine years there as the pastor. So it was one of those things where, Lord, why in the world would I leave the church I love, the people I love, when you're blessing in such wonderful ways? And, and really, my, my anticipation was that I'd get to serve there until uh, I retired from ministry or at least from that ministry. And so that was my hope and my goal and dream. Every, anything, I, really since I was a, in my late teens, the only thing I ever really dreamed of doing was being a pastor. And yet God made it evident. And one of the things God used in my heart was a text of scripture in Acts chapter nine. You don't have to turn there, but I was actually preaching this. And only one person went forward at the invitation, the conclusion of the service, it was me. And it was Acts chapter nine, verses 13 through 15, when the Bible says this, after, after Ananias is told by a vision from the Lord to go and lay hands on a certain man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, okay? 
He says this, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind, uh, to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And while I was preaching that message about this guy named Ananias, who was a nobody in the New Testament... Um, and that the idea that anybody can serve the Lord and God uses nobodies to accomplish something for him. Actually, I think the way I, I put it was God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. While I was preaching that, encouraging my people to be surrendered to do whatever God wants you to do, I realized that I was telling God no, in part because I couldn't fathom the concept that some, little, some, some, some guy from a little old rural Nebraska could ever possibly be the president of a mission organization. It was my love for the church, it was my love for the pastoral ministry, but it was also my own just sense of, Lord, you, there's just no way I could do that. And yet, the, the core of that text is, go for, for God has chosen, he is a chosen vessel, referring to Saul, Paul, of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and all the children of Israel. And what God spoke to my heart about was this, that's the future missionaries of Baptist Missions. That I could have just a little tiny part in, in, in seeing God work in their hearts to enlist them for missions, mobilize them for missions, help train them for missions, help launch them out, help support them in missions, and all the things that a mission agency does for the success of a missionary. I could just be a little tiny part of, of, of doing that. And, and God could get the most out of my life by my being surrendered to do that for him. Part of what I grappled with was, Lord, you know, you're, you're using me here. I want, I want you to use me here. And First Baptist was a church that, that had a significant missions footprint globally. Uh, the church is a sending church for about a dozen missionaries that are spread out all over the world. And I, I was totally satisfied with that. But then I realized, but that's nothing compared to getting the opportunity to help hundreds of missionaries serve in, in 50 plus countries through Baptist missions around the world that could, that could lead tens if not hundreds of thousands of people to Christ and start thousands of churches in the 20 years that, that I hope I have left to serve the Lord. And God just really did a work in my heart. And so I would ask you to pray for me as I shepherd this wonderful family that we call Baptist Admissions because they are the dearest servants of God. They're the dearest servants of God that have surrendered to God's call and are all over the world tonight Taking the gospel that we sang about, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. The gospel that we sang about, they're taking it to dark and difficult places where sometimes many people readily accept that gospel message, but in other cases, there are many people that hold them at arm's length and reject that gospel message. And so it's my pleasure and my privilege just to do everything I can to shepherd them and to shepherd the, the, the organization of Baptist Mid-Mission so that God will get the greatest glory and the greatest good out of my life and out of their lives. And that's really the way all of us should want to live is, is for God to get the most out of us in the time that we have on planet Earth. And so that's how God called me from, from First Baptist Church of Illyria to Baptist Mid-Missions, and it's my joy to be able to serve and to be able to minister in places like this through the Word of God. If you're not already, already there, Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15 tonight, um, I, I don't know what it's like at your house uh, or your marriage, but when God put Ruth and I together, he kind of had a sense of humor. 
not, not in a bad way, but, but in this way, in the sense that we are completely opposite of one another. I mean, we are completely distinct from one another. What is it like with your spouse? Are you, are you just like her? Are you just like him? I, I kind of hope not, really, <laughs> right? I mean, we're totally different, in, 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 especially in this sense. My wife is a very detail-oriented, organized kind of person. I am a big picture kind of person, which means my, life, my wife's life is very organized, and so she never loses anything, all right? Me, on the other hand, since childhood, my mom would say to me, you would lose your head if it wasn't screwed on. And that's what I really, that's kind of been my life ever, ever since childhood. And so a, poor, a, a point of, let's call it, let's say uh, sanctification in our marriage has been my dear wife putting up with her husband losing things. I still remember when we first got married, as a matter of fact, because one of, one of the things I lose the most are my keys, Right? And so we get married, and she's frustrated with me losing my keys all the time. And so she goes to the store, and she buys this little thing that says keys, K-E-Y-S, right? And she puts it up right next to the door, and she explains to me very graciously and very nicely. Now, when you come in the house, if you always hang your keys right there, guess what? You know, right? You won't lose your keys, and so you would think that then for the, la- for the next 33 years of our marriage, I've never lost my keys since then. Yeah, right, right? Or the other thing that I lose the most, you're probably going to guess this, the other thing I lose the most is my, my cell phone. Not my glasses, that, that, that would be up there, but my problem with my glasses is I'm so short, I'm so nearsighted that I, I can't like get out of the bedroom without <laughs> my glasses on. So, but my cell phone, my cell phone. And so, of course, you know, we've got the little, okay, fine phone on the, on, the, on the watch and all that kind of stuff that helps with that some of the time. So let me ask you a question then in relationship to that. When was the last time you lost something valuable? When was the last time you lost something valuable? And how did you respond? <laughs> Not how did your spouse respond, all right? How did you respond to losing something valuable? It's that theme that we see here in this portion of Scripture that we'll be reading. We won't read the entire chapter of Luke chapter 15, but we'll focus on the first 10 verses because in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables that focus on something that's lost. In the first parable, we see in verse 4, the parable of the lost sheep. The second parable in verse 9, we see the parable of the lost coin. And then the rest of the chapter, and specifically zoomed in on in verse 24, is the parable of the lost son, or we call him the prodigal son. But Jesus told all three of these parables to make the same exact point. It wasn't that each one of the parables had a different big idea. They're actually all the same in in terms of the point. And the point had to do with what? the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought about who Jesus was hanging out with. And so notice the the beginning of the text there in Luke chapter 15. Notice the way the Bible describes that in terms of the details of their interaction. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, that's Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained... Complained what? Saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them, saying. 
And then you have the rest of the three parables that Jesus explains. And he did that because of the attitudes of those that were criticizing him, the Pharisees and other religious leaders because of uh, the people with whom Jesus was spending time. Jesus was with sinners, probably in that were prostitutes and tax collectors and others that would have been considered the riffraff of society, especially in the eyes of the religious leaders. And he was even eating with them, the text says, which in Eastern culture would have been a demonstration of some level of, of acceptance, at least culturally, that would have communicated some level of acceptance that Jesus was eating with them. And to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, that would have been scandalous that Jesus would spend time with sinners. The Pharisees didn't understand how Jesus could hang out with what they considered riffraff or the deplorables of the day. And so Jesus told three parables to contradict their wrong beliefs. You see, Jesus spent time with the deplorables of his day because of his love for them and his desire to reach them. That was the reason. It was because of Jesus' love for the lost. And so pick up reading with me in in verse 4. We won't focus our attention so much in Verses 4 through 7, we're going to focus tonight on 8 through 10, but I think it's good for us to go ahead and read the the portion that leads up because you'll see some of those parallels. You'll see some of what I've already expressed in terms of this passage is teaching the same thing in all three parables. So verse 4, it says this, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays on it. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Parable number two, beginning in verse eight. Or what woman, having ten silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Did you notice the repetition of the ideas here, the repetition of even some of the themes here, especially in verses 7 and verse 10, that repetition of the idea that there's joy in the presence of angels over what? One sinner who repents. And so by saying that, Jesus defines what is meant by that which was lost. He explains what he means by a lost sheep, by a lost coin, and we won't study it, but a lost son. All of them are unbelievers who need to repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so what is Christ teaching us here in this portion of Scripture? He's simply teaching us this, that he wants us to love the lost. The Lord wants us to love the lost. Now, I would guess tonight that if I were to walk up to you and say to you, do you love lost people? Probably everybody in the room would be like, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah, I love lost people. But this text will demonstrate to us what the tests are as to whether or not we really love lost people. In other words, it's one thing to say you love those who need Christ. It's another thing to live in accordance with what Jesus is teaching here that demonstrates that we truly love those who need Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. 
Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for our time together tonight in the Word. I do pray again that you would use the Scriptures to speak to our hearts in a very powerful way. We're thankful for the power of the Word of God. We're thankful for the power of your Holy Spirit who has promised us that he would guide us into all truth and that he would illumine our eyes to the, to the message of the Scriptures. And so we pray for your Spirit's work and conviction, work in, in compelling us to be people who genuinely love lost souls, genuinely love those who need Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want to point out tonight is that if you really love lost people, lost people are worth searching for. Lost people are worth searching for. Searching for lost souls is a way that we demonstrate that we truly love those that are lost. And notice the way it's described here in verse 8. It says, Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Think about a couple things here. First of all, it's important for us to understand the, the value of what was lost. The, the text here says that she loses one out of ten coins. Now, one of, the, one of the challenges of understanding the Bible and interpreting Scripture is kind of building a bridge from modern-day life to ancient life. In other words, we have a tendency when we read the Bible to look at it just through modern eyes, in other words, our eyes and our life experience, and one of the tasks of a, of a Bible reader and a, and a Bible student, all of us as Christians, is to understand the culture of the day so that we can rightly understand the passage of Scripture and kind of cross back over to the bridge of our current day life. And this coin is an example of that. Because I, I would just ask you tonight, if you lost a penny, would it be a big deal? No, no. I mean, I hope you'll at least bend down and pick it back up, right? But it's not like you'd get all in a frenzy because you, oh, I lost a penny. I mean, if you lost a nickel, how about that? Yeah, maybe a little bit more. Maybe, how about a quarter? All right, maybe some of you might even now and then get a, have like a, a, a dollar. There are a few of those dollar coins that are still out there. Would, you, would, you, would, you, would, it, would that be a big deal? I mean, you probably look for it a little bit, right? Well, the, the coin that is being described here by Jesus in this parable was a Greek drachma. And a Greek drachma was what, what a uh, Roman soldier was typically paid for a day's wage. Now, you can translate that and interpret that in a number of ways. In a, very, in a very general sense, it would have been in modern day. So we take that to a modern day soldier in the army or whatever today, about what they're paid, you know, the lower ranks, that kind of stuff. Greek drachma would be approximately worth $100. Now, let me ask my question a little differently, okay? If you lost $100, would that be a big deal? Would you go looking for it? I doubt that there's anybody in the room that's like, ah, what's a hundred, right? No big deal. Just let it blow off into the wind, a hundred dollar bill, you know? I got more where that came from. No, if you lost a hundred dollars, you would go looking for it. And so for us to understand what Jesus is teaching here is he's teaching the value of what was lost. Now we understand. No wonder this lady was worked up, Right? And on top of it, some scholars believe not only was it this Greek drachma that would have been worth approximately $100 today, but on top of that, some Greek scholars or, or Bible scholars actually think it might have been a part of her wedding headdress. One of the things that they would do to decorate a headdress for the bride in that era was to decorate it with valuable coins. So not only was there monetary value, but there may have been sentimental value as well. Again, ladies, 
right? If you lost something that was really important to you sentimentally, do you think you'd be likely to go looking for it? Absolutely. And so Jesus here is teaching us about the value of what was lost. The second thing I would point out is this, that, 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 that Jesus is also teaching us about the intensity of the search. The intensity of the search. Notice the way that the story is, is, is written and how it's described. And when it says this in, in the middle of verse 8, it says, Does she not light a lamp? Does she not sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And so she, says, she does three things. She lights the lamp so she can see really well. And then on top of it, she sweeps every last corner, every last nook and cranny of the house so that there's not a speck of dust that hasn't been swept up. She sweeps the house. And then thirdly, it says that she searches carefully until she finds it. Her, her search was typified by both diligence and desperation. She has to find this coin. And I think it's important for us to understand the principle. The principle is this, that the more valuable something is, the harder you will search for it, right? The more valuable something is, the harder that you will search for it. And so let me ask a question then, because Jesus is not talking about coins. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about people. What is a lost soul worth, right? What is a lost soul worth? A lost soul, at, at, at the very minimum, is, is worth searching for. A lost soul is worth seeking. A lost soul is worth finding them, taking time to try to find them in terms of bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. The more valuable something is, the harder you will work to search for it. When I pastored at Holmes Baptist in Clarion, Wright County, about 45 miles southwest of here, um, I got to go on my first elk hunting trip to Colorado. A group of us guys, some from the church, some of them were my, my brothers-in-law. Uh, we went together and headed out to Colorado, and we went elk hunting in the Collegiate Peaks area of, of Colorado, west of uh, Colorado Springs, up in, uh, there were a lot of 14ers, which is a big thing in Colorado, the size of the mountains, and all kinds of beautiful mountains around us. And so we were super pumped about the opportunity to elk hunt. I'm a lifelong deer hunter, but I, at that time, had never been an elk hunter. And so you can imagine the excitement, the enthusiasm, and us getting up in you know, the middle of the night and, and, and taking this trail up the side of the mountain. And then eventually we, we left the gravel road, and that actually then turned into a Jeep trail with great big rocks. And we were in four-wheel four drive low gears and just scratching our way up the mountain just as far as we could get because we wanted to get as far away from civilization as possible. And my wife's brother, who was in the Air Force at that time and uh, stationed at the academy, he was the guy that scouted this all out for us, and he had everything planned for us. And so we just did what he said. And so eventually we got to the point where we couldn't drive any farther, parked the truck, and we took up off the side of the mountain and hiked back as far as our flatlander legs would take us before dawn, all right, before dawn. And so we're back there, and there's this spot where we've decided now, and Daniel was kind of, the, the, the guy in the Air Force was kind of telling us what we're going to do. He's like, we're going we're gonna to all spread out all in different directions, head off in these different directions, and then at 10 o'clock in the morning, we're all going to rendezvous right back here. There's, you know, there's, there's great big rock here. We're going to rendezvous right back here now. It, mind you, it's, it, it's still dark, okay? But we're going to right back here, 10 o'clock. And so we're all like, yeah, we're good. And everybody had a, a CB radio. And we're like, you know, if you have any problems, just, you know, get on the radio. We can talk to each other, hopefully. And it's all good. We all came back to the rock, except the chairman of my deacons. 
10 o'clock came around and Bob's not there. 10.30 came around, and we, by then we'd, you know, eaten our snacks and kind of were like, uh, um, I, I, wonder, I wonder where Bob is. <laughs> Finally, a few minutes later, we're like, okay, let's start, like, talking to him on the radios. We start chirping on the radios. You know, you don't want to make noise. You're, you're elk hunting, right? And one of the differences between white-tailed white deer and elk, if you spook a white-tailed deer, they run three or 400 yards, and then they stop and act like no big deal. An elk goes for two or three miles, just keeps on a trucking, all right? Get away from the humans. And so no response on the radio. Finally, we're like, you know what, guys? We better just go spread out. So we spread out in different directions. Anybody remember which direction Bob went? <laughs> we're like, yeah, I think he, uh, maybe that way. So we're kind of in that general direction. We're spreading out. We come back, no Bob. Nobody's found Bob. Finally, we're like, you know what? We got to start yelling. So we did it again. We spread out, climbed up the side of the mountain, start yelling, Bob, Bob, Bob. No Bob. No Bob. By now, it's getting on to the afternoon hours. And we're starting to think, okay, now when, when is the sunset? And how long will it take us to get down this mountain and get into town and, and call for search and rescue? And so finally, we're like, you know what? We're done. Um, somebody's going to stay here by the big rock in case Bob finally shows up half a day later. All right? But the rest of us are going to, we're going we're to head down the mountain. We're going to go to search and rescue. And we're going to call out search and rescue because Bob is what? He's lost. That's right. Bob is lost. And so we went down, search, problem was we got down there into, into town, into Buena Vista, and search and rescue was already out. They were dispatched for another guy who never reported back in, a bow hunter that never reported back in the day before. And so they were out looking for him. And they said, we're sorry, we can't look for your friend right now. We're like, great. Well, Bob was lost. And the rest of the story is this. Bob went over the top of a mountain and kind of got into the next draw down the next side of that, that mountain. And when it came time to come back to the rock, he showed up at a rock and went, where are the other guys? I mean, it's 10 o'clock. Where are they? They must be lost, right? He thought we were lost, except for by the time it got to be noon, one o'clock, with him sitting by the rock and nobody showed up, it finally dawned on him. I'm lost. <laughs> Thankfully, Bob had the presence of mind to realize what direction water runs. Water always runs down the mountain, and we had that morning, our campsite was near the river, and we had driven up the mountain, and so he thought, you know what, I better just start hoofing it. And so Bob spent that entire afternoon making his way, all those miles that we had traveled in four-wheel drive pickup trucks, he made his way down, the, I mean, he didn't have to do this like you do in the, on the trails, he just went down the mountain. Unfortunately, he trespassed on all kinds of public land in the process, and, and, and actually where they found him was totally bizarre. The, remember the search and rescue that was out looking for another guy? They were on their way back into town. They found him, okay? The other guy. They were on their way back into town, and there's this guy in orange walking down the side of the highway. It was Bob, all right? The river's right next to the highway. He'd gotten down to where he knew that the campsite was somewhere that direction, and he got to the highway, you know, kind of hit his gun in the, in the fence row and left his orange on and was hoofing it down the side of the road when search and rescue found him. Can you imagine being in my shoes? I was his pastor. He was the chairman of my deacons. What do you think it would have been like for me to call his wife? By the way, we did not call her until after, after he was found, all right? As a matter of fact, I made the mistake of telling my wife, calling my, we had to go to a certain spot to get cell signal. And so I went to a certain spot, called my wife, checked in with her and said, oh, by the way, Bob was lost, blah, 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 blah. So that night... We're sitting playing Rook in the cabin, amen and amen, 
Uh, we're playing Rook, and I said, oh, yeah, I told Ruth about you getting lost today. And he's like, you what? You told your wife? I hope she didn't tell my wife. And he threw his, he threw his Rook cards on the table, literally just throws his little Rook cards at the table, grabs his cell phone, and out the door he goes and goes to find a spot where he can have a signal to tell his wife that he'd been lost. He'd been lost. You see, we search desperately and diligently for Bob because what's a soul worth? What's a person worth? They're worth searching for. How does that compare to your efforts to reach people for Jesus? How does that compare to, to what you're doing to try to, to reach your neighbor for Christ? How does that compare to what you're doing to try to reach that, that relative for Christ? How does that compare to what you're doing to try to reach that coworker for Christ or somebody else that you know that needs Jesus Christ as their personal savior? You see, a genuine love for lost people will be demonstrated by intentional efforts to reach them for Christ. My concern is that I don't see a lot of that in a lot of Christians, and I don't see a lot of that in a lot of churches. Tim Capon's a good friend, our, our state representative here in the Iowa Association of Regular Baptist Churches, but I can't forget one thing I remember him saying many years ago. It was when he first became the state representative for the Iowa Association, and he was out visiting the churches, trying to get to know all the churches. And as he was, is, was in the churches, he said he asked a question that was really intentional. And the question was simply this, as he visited those churches, he said, when was the last time your church saw an adult saved and baptized and become a member of your church? When was the last time your church saw an adult saved and then baptized and become a member of your church. Here were his two most common answers from the churches of our association here in Iowa. Answer number one was, we can't remember how long. Answer number two was, it's been a really long time. It's been a really long time. Listen, folks, that is evidence of the fact that we're not searching for lost people like Jesus is teaching us to. We're not doing everything we can to reach other people with the gospel of Christ. J.D. Greer in his book, Gaining by Losing, uh, puts it this way in relationship to the mission of, of reaching people for Christ. He says, the church exists for mission. Without the mission, a church is not a church. Did you catch that? Without the mission, a church is not a church. It is just a bunch of disobedient Christians hanging out. If all we ever do is get together and we never try to reach more people for Christ, are we not missing what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to go to all the world and make what? Disciples reach the lost for Christ. Every adult ought to know how to present the gospel in a clear and concise and compelling manner and ought to be doing that on a regular basis. On a regular basis. And, and, and I realize in a, in a group this size, maybe not all of, all of you know what I mean when I say you ought to be able to present the gospel or the plan of salvation. Let me explain it just very simply in five simple God-focused ways. Number one, God is personal and he created you for a relationship with you, with him. He created you for a relationship with him. And yet in the garden, man sinned. So God is personal, right? Number two, God is holy, God is holy, and as a holy God, he can't allow sin into his presence, and so unholy people can't go to heaven. 
God is personal. He wants a relationship with you that was severed by sin. God is holy. He can't allow sin into his presence. Number three, God is just, and a just God then must punish sin. God would not be God if he was not just and did not punish sin. And so what we deserve for what we have done is eternity in hell. That is the just punishment for our sin. So God is personal. God is holy. God is just. But aren't you thankful tonight that God is also loving? God is so loving that he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus Christ died as the perfect, sinless son of God, bearing our sin on the cross, was buried and rose again from the grave. We've been singing about that beautifully this week. Jesus died for your sin and took your place. God is loving. He sent his son. And then finally, the fifth one is God is gracious. And he offers eternal life to you as a free gift. By grace, you're saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the what? Gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so there may be some here today, this week, tonight, that have never in repentant faith embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and placed all of their trust in what Jesus did for them on the cross. If that is you, you're lost. And Jesus is seeking you. And you need to place your faith in Christ ASAP, as soon as possible. And if I can help you or somebody else can help you do that, we would love to do that. And yet, that's the message then that we all should be proclaiming, right? That God is personal, God is holy, God is just, God is loving, God is gracious. That's a wonderful message, isn't it? And it's the message that he has given to us. So what should we do about that? Let me quickly give you some so what's before the conclusion. I'm going to wrap them into my two points tonight instead of at the very end. So what in relationship to this first idea of the lost are worth searching for is number one, cultivate relationships with lost people. How many lost friends do you have? How many lost friends do you have? As believers, we ought to not just only have friends of people in the church. Cultivate relationships with lost people. Number two, pray for lost people by name. Who do you have on your prayer list that you regularly pray for? One person I know has what he calls the find five. In other words, find five people, five people that you will regularly pray for for their salvation. Pray for lost people by name. Number three, pray for and look for opportunities. Pray for opportunities and then look for them. After all, the apostle Paul did. Part of what Paul asked people to pray for him in the, in the epistles is pray for th- that the door would be open, and he prayed for opportunities. I like to pray like this, and this isn't original with me, that all of us should, should pray for open doors, open mouths, that's ours, open doors, open mouths, and open hearts. Every day we ought to be praying that way if we're searching for lost people. And then fourthly, get training. If there's, if there's some deficiency, if you feel inadequate, And I would say this to us pastors in the room, that's our job as Ephesians 4 equippers, as pastor teachers, we're supposed to be equipping people to do the work of the ministry. And so part of what we're supposed to be doing is is training people. So fourthly, get training and be sure to be training your people. The churches I pastored, we always had some kind of evangelism training going on. We used evangelism explosion. We used the exchange Bible studies. Uh, Right now, our pastor is is teaching us all how to use uh, four-part John studies and he's actually going around to every adult Sunday school class and teaching that for four or five weeks so that there's not a single adult in the church that has an excuse if they don't know how to have a, have, a, have a gospel Bible study with somebody. Whatever the method, share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Share the gospel. Get training. And then finally, go to them. 
go to them. We can't expect lost people to show up at church. Actually, Greer in that same book said this about lost people in church today. As so many people have no context to Christianity in their lives, he said expecting a lost person in America today to go to church is kind of like expecting you to go to mosque. Totally weird, right? Totally foreign, totally outside your life experience. You realize that for a lot of Americans, that's the case today. And so go to them. Don't expect them to come to you. And, and then let me just remind you, let me just remind you that the search for souls is both a local and a global proposition. Yep. And that we ought to be reaching people for Christ here. But you know what? We ought to be reaching people for Christ all over the world. There are 8 billion souls on planet Earth today, and of those 8 billion souls on planet Earth today, one in four have no gospel witness. Can you fathom that? What, what, what do I mean by that? Well, missiologists define it in a number of ways. One of the ways missiologists define it is like this. One in four people, that's 2 billion souls, don't have easy access to a Bible in their heart language, they don't know a Christian or know of a genuinely born-again Christian, and they don't have a gospel-preaching church within their vicinity. Stop and think about that for a second. That's foreign to us as Americans. Maybe I should ask you it this way. How many Bibles do you own? Right? Probably dozens. If you count all the ones on your apps, on your phone app, all kinds of versions there, Right? How many Christians do you know? Well, you've got about 400 of them right here, right? But think about your bigger sphere and bigger circle of, of, of acquaintances, at least, that know Jesus as their Savior, probably in the multiple hundreds, maybe in the multiple thousands. And how many churches do you drive by on your way to your church on Sunday that preach the gospel? Sometimes I count when I'm, because my ministry is primarily itinerant now, Sometimes I count when I go from either the hotel or the house where we stayed on, on Saturday night and on the way on Sunday morning. Do you know there have been times when I've counted as many as 10 or more gospel preaching churches on the, one, on the way to the one where I get to preach? We ought to thank the Lord we live in America. But at the same time, are we willing to go to take the gospel where that's not the case? Where, where one in four people on this planet... No Bible, no Christian, no church. Are you willing? What's a soul worth in China? What's a soul worth in Indonesia? What's a soul worth in Tajikistan? What's a soul worth in some country that has very, very little gospel witness? Are they worth enough for you to go searching for them? Because they are worth enough for Jesus to die for them. And he did. That's what the soul is worth. A soul's worth searching for because a soul was worth Jesus dying for. And every one of us ought to be willing to do everything we can. And maybe God hasn't called you to go, but, but I hope you're praying. I hope you're giving. I hope you're doing everything possible for those whom God has called to go to those kinds of places because souls are worth searching for. Secondly, souls are worth rejo rejoicing over. They're worth rejoicing over. In other words, if you really lo love lost souls, you will search for them. If you really love lost souls, you'll rejoice when, they, when they're found. Notice what the text says. Again, it's repeated from earlier in, in, in the previous portion of Scripture where it describes the lost sheep. But it says this, And when she has found it, verse 9, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. 
Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice two things quickly. Number one, the heartfelt joy. I mean, this lady practically, she practically throws a party. I mean, she calls her neighbors, she calls her friends together and says, rejoice with me, what I've lost has been found. Rejoicing, a, a heartfelt joy. But then secondly, I love the way Jesus describes it here in terms of a heavenly joy as well, not just a heartfelt joy, because what he says there in verse 10 is this, likewise I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Think about that for a second. Joy in the presence of the angels of God. Do you ever let your sanctified imagination just kind of <laughs> try to picture that? I mean, what, what exactly do the angels do when they rejoice, right? I mean, do they like, like zoom across heaven, fly across heaven, like high-fiving with their wings or something like that? You know, there's got to be some kind of excitement, I think, some kind of enthusiasm. I don't think they go, hallelujah, hallelujah. I think they're a little more pumped up than that. Well, unless they're Baptist angels. <laughs> and then it's, Amen. <laughs> Hope you mean it. Seriously. Because oftentimes that's our response. I kind of liked it when somebody clapped this morning about somebody getting saved. You know, that's not our normal. Some of us are kind of cringy over that, right? That we clapped in a Baptist setting. But to me, that was an expression of joy because it ought to pump us up when we think about the fact that a sinner got saved. I mean, think about the most joyful things that ever happened in your life. Number one has to be your salvation, right? Number two was the day that my wife said, I do. I got married. And number three, four, five, and six were the births of our four kids, right? And all of those were special and unique and joyful. But for some reason, you remember the first one the most, probably because you're scared out of your wits, <laughs> right? I was. How, how old was I? I was 22, right? Yeah, I had a reason to be scared out of my wits. And, and, and that night, I mean, my wife had been in false labor all week long. And, and do you remember the days when everybody had a waterbed? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of testing your age here, okay? We had a waterbed. And so we went to bed that night. I didn't know that she was in labor other than maybe she was having Braxton Hicks. And so we went to bed that night and all night long she was in legit labor, okay? And so every time that she had a contraction and, and, and all that that goes on when you're giving birth type of thing, she would rock back and forth in the water bed. So about two or three in the morning, something like that, she finally decides they're coming close enough together that it's time to wake him up, okay? And so she reaches over and shakes me and wakes me up and she says, I think we need to get up. And I'm like, oh, I think I'm really sick. <laughs> and I rolled out of the bed for the bathroom because she made me motion sick in a waterbed by rocking around every time she was having a contraction, that crazy lady. <laughs> and yet, despite that, eventually, I crawled back to the bedroom and was like, what'd you say? <laughs> We're having a baby. We need to go to the hospital. The rest is, you know, you know the process, right? It was rather lengthy. Um, she was in labor a long time, pushed for a long time. They prepped her for a, a C-section. They started saying, you know, this is not looking good. It's looking like we're going to have to do a C-section. Of course, that freaks you out even more as a new dad as they begin to go through all that procedure and all that kind of stuff. 
as God would have it, she was able to give birth naturally, and, and what a moment that was. You know, when the baby pop, or the doctor pops the baby on the backside and it lets out a scream, and then the doctor hands your little girl, Ellen Murray, to you. Doctor handed her to me, and I brought her down and cuddled up, placed her on Ruth's chest, and then we just embraced, and we bawled. Because of the joy of the moment, we have a baby. We're parents. Amazing joy. Why? Because a person had been born. Think about that in relationship to what happens when a soul is saved. How does Jesus describe that in John chapter 3? A person is born again. And nothing ought to thrill our soul quite like a person being born again. And if you've ever led somebody to Christ, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's one thing when you hear somebody else leading somebody else to Christ, you should still get excited about that, yes. But when you had the privilege of leading someone else to Christ yourself, it ought to just thrill your heart. I like to think of it this way. Our response to somebody getting saved is an indicator of our spiritual temperature. How hot or warm you are toward the things of God. And if it doesn't thrill your soul, if you're more excited about your raise at work, if you're more excited about your next digital device, if you're more excited about your house, your car, your boat, your stuff, all that kind of stuff, if you're more excited about that than about a soul getting saved, something is wrong. Because the lost are worth rejoicing over. Think about it this way. A person goes from from darkness to light. A person goes from heaven to hell, from being destined for for heaven, or from hell to heaven, excuse me. Child of the devil to a child of the king, slave of sin to a slave of righteousness, living for self to living for the Lord, unforgiven sinner, sinner to a forgiven saint, from being lost to being found, from being pagan to being Christian. And that ought to thrill our hearts. So what? Number one, check your Spiritual temperature. When, when you hear of somebody getting saved, does something stir within your soul that makes you want to say praise the Lord or hallelujah or clap or whatever because someone got saved? Or is it just a amen? Hope you mean it. Or some other grim, grumpy looking thing on your face or in your soul worse. Check your heart. And then secondly, make a big deal out of people getting saved. And I would say and baptized. I don't have a time to tell you a story of, of what, what our son-in-law's church does when students come to know Christ and get baptized, but it's, it's amazing. And it is probably the most pump you up, excited service of the year when, when they have baptisms. And, and these students that are university students up in Minneapolis and St. Paul, it is just, it's powerful. Why? Because they celebrate. They celebrate, and we ought to celebrate when someone gets saved. We ought to celebrate when someone follows the Lord in the believer's baptism. So I'll come back to where we started tonight. Do you really love the lost? Is it evidenced by searching for them? Intentionally trying to reach somebody, even if it's just one somebody, trying to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, are you willing to search for a soul somewhere else. What if God wants you to serve him 
in one of those places that has virtually no gospel witness. One of our missionaries who was in the world's po most populous nation at the time, she was in that one of those huge ginormous cities and she saw all the souls and she realized that the majority of them didn't know Jesus. And, and this was the thought that came to her mind that I heard her repeat later. The fact that they don't know Jesus, God's not good with that. And then she said, and I'm not good with that. And that ought to be the expression of every born-again Christian is that we shouldn't be good with the fact that people are living and dying having never heard the gospel once. Would you be willing to take the gospel to them? Are you willing to go? And are you thrilled when someone makes a profession of faith? Where's your heart? Is it hot or is it cold? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, I pray that if, 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 if nobody but one person hears this message and does something about it and then goes and, and leads a soul to Christ as a result that this message would be worthwhile. If even just one soul is in heaven as a result of what you've laid on my heart. But Lord, I pray for more. Lord, I pray some, for some ladies like the lady who had a Bible study with my mom to start reaching out to their lady friends with the gospel. I pray for some men to begin to have gospel conversations that maybe just start by saying, how can I pray for you? And begin to try to reach their coworkers or neighbors for Christ. But Lord, I pray for teenagers, friends they play ball with or friends they work with, or people that they spend time with. I pray that you'd burden them right now for lost people that they need to seek and to search for. And I pray, Father, that as the result of this message tonight, there might be some that would even say, I'll go across the planet. Take the gospel where it's so desperately needed. And as the fruit of this time in your word at camp here, I pray that there'd be hundreds, maybe even thousands of souls in heaven someday. If it would please you, and if it would be your will, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Sing this song of testimony. All I